Lounge at the podcast. We are live from the Hotel Del Coronado tonight in San Diego. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. That was well done. And wow, it seems a little more wow crunchy normally, but that was just so smooth. Yeah, that was usually that was like scripted. Enthusiasm because we're so fucking tired, but we are we are fully intoxicated. We just watched just watched the sunset. Fully intoxicated. I am okay. Speak for yourself. Some of us. Exactly. Are. Yeah. So Let's just say we're all in time. I think yeah. the molding of that corner of that door is really. Oh, that's creepy. Poorly yeah. done. Yeah. That's really poorly Looks done. Looks like it melted into the wall. Oh, Maybe okay. it did. Anyways, anyway, that's not important no, right not now. Really, no. Um, we are fully. I'm fully intoxicated. I'm partially. Intoxicated. I'm partially intoxicated. Fully, okay, cool. probably. <laughs> nice. Fully, but going to admit partially. Roxanna's drinking that Knob Creek. I'm not fashion. drinking. I've had those not. before. Those are so That's good. That's Teresa. Teresa. Yeah. All right. So I'm yes, fully I'm intoxicated. intoxicated. <laughs> I'm literally <laughs> drinking something completely okay, different. Are you ready? Oh, <laughs> it's in a can. I, I thought I saw less of the stores. 35% alcohol by volume. 35 okay. Mine's only 5%. 70 proof. Okay. Mine is only 4.9. I have a bottle of alcohol in my hand. Yeah. Shout, shout out I'm to Andrea, so. our coworker, who got us yes. a, a collection of those, oh. and we drank them in like two nights. It was very Damn. not good. Anyways, okay. I so I thought we would. Um, <laughs> I thought we would start off today our live time episode and I'm going to read Johnny 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 we're going to read these little posters. For those who are joining us on time, Lebanese 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 and Oscar from Welcome to the Hotel Del Coronado. And um, somebody Google like who the host is because she was. Yeah. Okay, here we go. I mean, actually, I don't know. I don't know. Microphone's over there. Camera's over here. The champion swimmer and actor. I'm going to read my factoid and then we're going to go around the ring. Here's bar now. The BNS bar because I have 19 That's fine. That makes sense, right? Yes. And okay. My first factoid is Tarzan. Tarzan. Is called described as amazingly loud. I don't get internet, but well, it's time for tickling the ivories. (laughs) In the summers of 1950 and 1951, a relatively unknown Liberace entertained guests in the circus room which is now the carousel room. A Hollywood producer caught his act one night and made Liberace the star of the very first syndicated television program. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I have romantic inspiration. President Ronald Reagan was a frequent guest at the hotel throughout his life. He brought Nancy Davis to the Dell 
when he came to deliver a speech at the Junior League Convention. According to Reagan, that trip to the Dell inspired him to ask Nancy to marry him. Ooh. Aww. I mean, that makes Aww. sense. It's, it's romantic. Yeah, it's ridiculously yeah, beautiful. Yeah. It is romantic. <laughs> yeah. No, I love the picture of the Reagan family and um, baby daughter Reagan just yeah. looked like I hate my parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like four times. Time. Yeah. I, yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm here on vacation. They said everything. Yeah. With <laughs> my family. Just over it. Sorry. My family. My parents are the Reagans. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes, sorry, young Reagan, but you were exposed. <laughs> you were exposed. By your face. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah. Oh. It's your turn. Yeah, go Ooh. ahead. Some like it hot, but they also like it sweet. While Marilyn Monroe was filming Some Like It Hot in 1958, she took a fancy to bakery chef Argyle Benedict's cold souffléed vanilla pudding. Crowned with a small white dove made of egg whites. She ordered it every day during her stay. Aww, so cute. Cool. Let's go. Marilyn. Alright, I'm gonna close this door here. I know the ocean is so annoying. Oh man. <laughs> God, those waves. That's the fifth. It's the fifth gonna, guess. Okay, we're gonna go play in the ocean later and someone <laughs> may or may not. Die, die, <laughs> or go missing forever. Well, oh. essentially dying if you go All missing right. forever in the ocean. Pat is gone, but I'm still gonna read my last. Oh, <laughs> here oh, we go. Okay, here Sorry. we go. Sorry. No, we're taking the, the recess. No. Okay. <laughs> no, we're not. No recess. This is full class. <laughs> Sorry, my bad. Blast to the past in 1970. Science fiction. Op- Science fiction auctioneer. Blast to the past. In 1970, science fiction author Ray Bradbury, who frequently visited the Dell with his family, said, When I'm not busy off in the year 1999, I like to relax in 1899 Hotel Del Coronado. Is just the time machine to do the job. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Nailed it. So that's why there's a rocket. And that is the coasters. That's cool. That is the coasters we found here. Bradbury would stay here to, to inspire him. That's interesting. Here um, in the Hotel Dell. So we have some uh, stories of San Diego tonight. With the lovely Teresa giving us the history and the insight of the Hotel Del Coronado. Yes, let's let's talk about it. So good. Okay, so the Hotel Del Coronado. Oh my god! It was built in 1888. February 19th, 1888. Hold on. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah. So essentially, right after Valentine's Day. 1888. We can start over from the beginning. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Hotel Del Coronado was built in 1888, February 19th, very close to Valentine's Day. Uh, so, trying to imagine Valentine's Day at 1888, yes. Okay, and at that time it was also known and still is as the Dell and Hotel Dell. 
So much easier to say than Hotel Del Coronado. Um, but, you know, kind of hip. If you want to be inside, you can call it the Del. It's not Del Taco. It's the Del Coronado. Yeah. Yeah. Del Memories is no, the Wi-Fi is. password for those of you who want to. Oh, it is. I kind of would... Yes, thank you. <laughs> Del Memories. <laughs> you didn't know I didn't yet. remember. <laughs> it is a historic beachfront hotel um, in the city of Coronado, not San Diego. It's an entire city of Coronado. It's an island unto itself. And it's just across uh, San Diego Bay. So, I mean, that's pretty cool. I don't know. I like islands. Uh, okay. I'm going to talk about other things so I don't sound whatever I sound like. Okay. The architecture is um, wooden Victorian beach resort. Yes. There is so much... <laughs> So much wood. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> everywhere. I was trying to avoid saying it like that, but there is. There's a lot of wood everywhere. That's okay. There but is. it's yes. It's wood holding up everything. I mean, it's it's solid. Does that also sound bad? I don't know. No, okay. Sad. Anyway. Yeah, I feel <laughs> it's really good. Yeah. It's, wood, though, so yeah. Yeah, it's, it's good by the ocean. It's actually the second largest wooden structure in the United States. Ooh, what's the first? The first is Tillamook Air Museum. Air Museum? Yes. And is that where they make the cheese? I was just about to ask. In in Tillamook, Oregon. Oh. Yeah. Is that where they make the cheese? The cheese, cheese, yes. They do make the cheese. They make the cheese and also ice cream or other dairy. Oh, yeah. It's made by Tillamook. Yeah. It's real good. It is because it just really is good. But yes, that is the second largest um, outside of Tillamook. So that museum must be huge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This hotel is huge. There is a lot of wood in here. There's (laughs) a lot of wood. (laughs) A lot of wood. A lot of wood. Um, Okay. So in 1977, it landed on the National Historic Landmark as a National Historic Landmark Ooh. in 1977. <laughs> and it has different seven, uh, the number is associated with it many times. It has seven floors, 757 rooms, according to today, um, and seven restaurants. So that's seven, seven, seven. Oh, sorry. Seven, seven, fifty-seven, and seven. It's hmm. a lot of seven. That's yes. a lot of seven. Save in three, three, seven, zero. Yes. yes. <laughs> I have a seven tattooed on my head. Yeah, and we're staying in room and seven. We are staying in room seven. At the Cosmopolitan. Yeah. yeah. So, but at a different hotel. Yeah. So seven is good. Eight's good, too. Um... 1888 opening at the time it was the largest resort hotel in the world um believe it because 1888 yeah definitely 
there's not going to be a lot of other contenders at the time. Um, it was the first real estate boom in San Diego. So at the time, it was a common practice to, for developers to build a grand hotel as a draw uh, to an otherwise empty landscape. So everybody wanted to be like, hey, come here to San Diego. And a couple other examples are um, of the same kind of thing. The hotel, or sorry, the, the Hollywood Hotel in Hollywood, the Raymond Hotel in Pasadena, mm. and also the Hotel Del Monte in Monterey. Mm. Is, oh, the Del Monte Hotel in Monterey yep. is now where the Naval Postgraduate School is, and it's gigantic. Yes. And they still have peacocks there. Okay. <laughs> that live on the grounds. Uh, and the Hollywood Hotel is where the Hollywood Highland Mall is now, but it's not. Oh, there yeah. Anymore. Okay, yeah. So these were all similar development enticement examples to yeah, draw people to the area. Yeah. It is because, you know, that, who knows what, what builds a city or builds a town or whatever, but yeah. Not rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not in this case, but, um, you know, it was one of the world's first hotels to have electric lighting, big deal, electric. And this is really cool too. Electric wires were installed inside the gas lines. So if the electricity didn't work, they could just use the gas to illuminate the rooms. Very cool. Right. But the electricity, I think did work for the most part. So. Um, Thomas Edison, though, was not involved. Oh, thank God. <laughs> I don't really actually have anything to do with electricity. Well, fuck that. <laughs> no, yeah. But the Mather Electric Company out of Chicago was, and 2,500 Mather incandescent electric lamps were placed throughout the hotel. Um, electricity was actually introduced into San Diego in 1886. Mm -hmm. um, oh, and then all the original amenities, so many. There was an Olympic-sized saltwater pool. Ooh. Tennis courts. Yes. <laughs> I remember those. <laughs> I yacht club. They had those here. I was like, I remember tennis courts. <laughs> Japanese tea garden. Oh. Oh. Ostrich farm. Oh. Oh wow. Yeah. No. Mm -hmm. You don't want that. Would have been fun. <laughs> Is it? They're mean. Billiards. <laughs> Billiards. Bowling alleys. Hunting expeditions. Deep sea fishing. Oh, so cool. quite a lot of uh, amenities and activities here for the guests at the time. I hope they hunted the ostrich. Well, as you can imagine with, um, with all these amenities and being so close to the ocean and all that, I mean, it was a very popular place to stay. Um, for most of Hollywood and other dignitaries during the 1920s and 30s. So um, presidents of the day, especially 
uh, celebrities, definitely. Some of the presidents of the day, um, President Harrison, McKinley, Taft, Wilson, uh, the Hollywood celebrities, Douglas Fairbanks, Charlie Chaplin, Rud Rudolph Valentino, Clark Gable, Errol Flynn, Mae West, Joan Crawford, Katherine Hepburn, Betty Davis, Ginger Rogers, just a few. <laughs> you can see that was like nearly everyone of, at the time. Yes, at the time, you know, they're going to want to stay here. So, uh, and Fuck you, Errol Flynn. Did you say Errol Flynn? Yeah, I did say Errol Flynn. He's not yeah, yeah. We, we did a thing on that. Yeah, <laughs> he liked to, yeah, do he bad things killed to small people. He killed what was his name? The guy, or whatever, <laughs> Ricky Nelson. No, he did what? what? No, was it Ricky Nelson? <laughs> Who was the fucking. Guy that lived in his home afterward. Whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. You don't remember? Well, I did that whole podcast where no, I, but I did. lived in Errol Flynn's home and Errol Flynn possessed him. Oh. And he became possessed. Oh, okay. Like, not while he was alive. No. So I was like, he didn't like Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn's ghost possessed. Oh, okay. Um, Ricky Nelson. Um. Right? Oh, I know what you're talking about. I forgot. Sorry. Whatever. Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, no. <Yep>. no. <laughs> you're good. Well, it is still like much like, um, let's I see. <laughs> much, much like the popular hotels in Hollywood, like the Roosevelt and, um, you know, I, I don't know, others, et cetera. They still stars, you know. Whether they're gone or alive, they still want to stay here too. At the um, um, where are we? The Coronado. <laughs> <laughs> no, they want to stay here. Um, so there's been, you know, I could I could list a, <laughs> people who've been here today, but you could take your pick of celebrities. They've been here. You know, this is still. Still a big a big deal. It's a big deal for us to be here right now. Oh my God, so historical. Love so it. it's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. We love it. So let's talk more about it. Um, okay. So I, you know, I basically went through the whole gamut of 1920s, 30s celebs, but also more notable, Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, of course. Was here to film Some Like It Hot in 1959 with um, Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon. And, um, you know, they've got a little picture of her um, in the museum. You know, does her justice, but can you really do her justice? Not really. I mean, anyway, she's, <laughs> she's here and her ghost has been reported here, definitely. Um, it's been a big presence, so, you know, it'd be great to see Marilyn or hear her or feel her, but, you know, who knows. Um, also, L. Frank Baum, um, who you know as the author of The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, he did much of his writing here, actually, at the Dell, which is so exciting. I mean, I'm a Midwesterner, and, and he's 
from there, but, you know, he came here to write and, and he wrote, um, you know, a few of the books for Wizard of Oz. So that's really exciting. Um, okay. And he also designed, um, what we were talking about the, uh, earlier, the crown. So this is the, the Coronado, right? Hotel also means crown, clowned. They have uh-huh. like the crown is like their symbol throughout the whole yeah. mm-hmm. hotel and they have the, those crown chandeliers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So he designed those. Al Frank Bond did. That's interesting. Yeah. So That's why they have the Wizard of Oz stuff down yes, in the gift. Yes. Okay. That makes sense. And the gift shop. Yeah. I want, yeah. I want like a neck one of those crown chains. We'll get one tomorrow. Yeah, rock that for oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's it's big. Um, so yes, that that you Bye. know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like get it. So Bye. many notable guests here from you know, from uh, you know, back then and now <laughs> and beyond. Um. And there are uh, definitely the hauntings. I mean, yes, this is a haunted hotel, just like the Cosmopolitan, the other <laughs> hotel where we're staying in. Uh, There's a is, theme. Yeah. That's also another haunted See, hotel. When we walked up into your hotel, I was like, this place is haunted. Yeah. <laughs> this can, is so haunted. But that's how I felt here because the floor is so uneven. You know, if the yeah. floor is uneven, it's haunted. It's haunted. It's like, the ghost. It. It's just yeah. layers and layers and layers of ghosts. You can yeah. feel yeah. it. Yeah. Just, just ectoplasm. Movement of people in and out. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Which is always yeah. involved. Yeah. yeah. You can. You can feel it. Um, so the hauntings here are, let's say, brief, but they are somewhat intense. It, at least one is in, in the story, but. Um, there's at least two two deliberate hauntings here, um, you know. Definitely more, prob probably. But um, okay, so the one that's the most prominent is the ghost of Kate Morgan, and Kate Morgan is probably the lady that haunts um, this entire hotel the most. Um, she was, she's, you know, at the time she was like in her mid twenties, originally from Fremont County, Iowa. And she checked in at the Dell on November 24th, 1892. So right around Thanksgiving. Um, and she checked in under the name Miss Lottie A. Bernard. And she said she was from Detroit. So, okay. Um, <laughs> The staff said she was ladylike and well-dressed. They also said that she was beautiful, which I kept reading in the description. I kept thinking, well, you can only say somebody's beautiful so many times, but somebody, you know, they kept describing her as that, as beautiful. And, um, but they also said she was troubled and very melancholy. So there's a couple different accounts, but, in this one, Kate said she was awaiting her the arrival of her brother, who was a doctor, and he was going to treat her for stomach cancer. 
well, he never arrived. Um, and at that point, she, three days later, she was found dead on the steps leading to the beach. The case was declared a suicide and uh, it was believed to be a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. What? But was it? Wait, like she shot she, herself she, on the steps? Yes, mm -hmm. yes. And nobody noticed? Yes, exactly. During the coroner's inquest, there was a statement made that the bullet found in her head did not match that of her own gun. That's weird. What was her brother's name? It doesn't, it doesn't say. What, was it Bill? No, oh, okay. I mean this is kind of like folklore at this point, but okay. but but yeah, but that Why was. Are you getting Bill on the EVB? I, I got a Bill. When well, we talked about her checking it. It said flavor, Bill. It could have been Bill because Kate. I would say without having you know stayed here for any length of time or been here, I I think Kate is obviously the resident ghost here. You know, with all respect to Kate, I think you are. So um, she's probably number one here. And when we went down, I don't know if you guys remember in the gift shop, but we saw like um, that whole black outfit and Is stuff. Yeah, it's supposed to be her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. And then there was the book next to her and stuff. Like, even though she was not in mourning herself at the time, or it was supposed that, you know, she was not supposed to be in mourning, but. At that time, I mean, it was a head-to-toe black outfit that we saw in there, but um, that's what she would have been dressed like anyway. And maybe that's how she appears to some people here. Um, but, yeah, she's, she's a very unsettled spirit. She's still roaming the grounds. She's still here. She couldn't visit us tonight. Who knows? You know? But, I mean, <laughs> she's, she's here. Um, and it's important to note that she was checked into room 302 at the time and uh now it is uh supposed to be room 3327 oh so it's actually it's pretty close to us it's close to yeah. us right now yeah, <laughs> but this is the room that <laughs> where she stayed you know um so but that's that's Kate, and that's that's her her deal. Crazy. But there was also another no. um, another unexplained death, you know, if you will. Um, Isadora Rush, she was a vaudeville and Broadway actress, and she was staying here also in the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. She drowned off of this you know, off of the Pacific Ocean, basically, near the beach at the Hotel Del Coronado, November 14th, 1904. So that was another just com completely unexplained, um, you know, death associated here with the Del Coronado. So I don't know. I mean, um, luckily, nothing else uh has happened uh, that we know of you know but um it does seem that you know this is it's kind of <laughs> marked for um 
maybe darker things to happen sometimes. And you did mention the Winchester Mystery House. And even though I haven't been there yet, yeah, I could see that maybe that has some elements of strangeness to it, the hallways and mm -hmm. places leading to nowhere type of thing. And yeah, um, I could see that. So. Well, I heard like the the two brothers or the guys who like designed this area were in such a rush to get this together that they never actually had a full blueprint put together for building this place. And uh, you can really see that kind of in the construction of this place is that the fact that there's marble. like marble. Okay. <laughs> but Marble, yeah, like, I get it. Because you get but these good. large hallways like what we're in, but then you then get you these tiny, really tiny, tiny hallways. Places. Sense, and like everything that, seems that so. It lacks continuity. I think that might have happened during like a remodeling. Right, yeah. But everything seems so like patched together in this place. Yeah. yeah. But. We're gonna go investigate some more. Yeah. <laughs> three, three, two, three. Is that one? Uh, three, 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 three. three, three, three. I will look at. Okay, it's um. Wait, should... No, wait. I have it. I have it. I have it. Uh, yeah, right down. Wait, sorry. I have it. I have it. I thought read minutes. Um, this is a. Wait. Yes. No, I read it. It's just. Read it to you. Oh, here, because they're right in the margin. Um, 3327. 3327. No, you're not going to ask them. Well, I did the research on it, so not it. <laughs> uh, so she's already on to Not it. Not it. Not it. But yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Now I got to talk about someone being brutally murdered. Brutal. Yay. Yay. A woman being brutally murdered. Oh. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Why is it always women getting right. brutally murdered? I mean... That's like those men are awful. They are. No, it's men true. Are awful. Yeah, and men are the worst. That's why awful. I just usually produce this podcast. But today I'm gonna talk about <laughs> today I'm gonna talk about how terrible this man is. Or this man could have been. Um so yes, this is about Rebecca Zahow. Uh the reason I'm talking about this, I'm assuming, is because Tia realized this mystery happened uh in Coronado. Uh, which is where the we are. Island that we are. Not about the hotel, like, the island of Coronado? Yeah, like, yeah. The oh. Coronado is like a county, I guess, or like basically a city of the town. Uh, the island of Coronado, I guess, would be, you know, if you saw that way camera, you'd see an ocean and there's an island out there with a bunch of cruise ships out there probably operating without, like, illegally. It sounds like you're supposed to be on a cruise ship. No, they have cruises now. They're back. Yeah, they're back. Okay. Yeah. Like Florida. Yeah. Um, so a nude woman's body is found bound and gagged on an oceanfront mansion in an idyllic community, also known as Spreckles Mansion, brought to you by Klaus Spreckles, which we'll get into later. Uh, an apology, appalling tragedy involving a child. Um, but yes, this her name was Rebecca Zahow. Her death um, is a huge influence on a lot of conspiracy theories and has been 
investigated by every true crime podcast or mystery show or, you know, some films even. But new um, to our podcast. Totally new to our podcast. Yeah. So, um, so we're going to have our crack at it because everybody apparently has a different angle. Um, so, um, and, and also I forgot to mention, like, it's also still open investigation. That's not, it still hasn't been solved and they're constantly fighting back and forth as to who is actually responsible for this. Uh, so how, obtain. Uh, obtain. Okay. That's the yeah. EVP. Okay. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Rebecca was an immigrant from Myanmar whose body was found cops. early on July. Ooh. Ooh the cops oh, found okay. Her. Okay. okay. Oh, yeah, and just so you guys know, yeah, uh, Roxana is not freaking out on us. Roxana does <laughs> not, not have Tourette's. Um, we just have an EV- EVP going because um, if we haven't mentioned before, we're recording at the Hotel Del Coronado, which is totally known to be haunted. <laughs> yes. Um, In room number 7033. No, it's 3370. Three, three, <laughs> also, Tia is not possessed. Uh, I'm, I'm just slightly <laughs> drunk. I'm going to drink the rest of this decaf coffee. Yes, yes, that's yes. Um, so she officially, the, officially she has died by her own hand. And oh. like I mentioned before, but we didn't because I'm re-recording this the third time, yeah. is that she was found bound and gagged and hanging from a yeah. rope off of her balcony. And they ruled this died by her own hand. This is somehow a suicide. Um, Her sisters don't buy it and have long pressed the point, um, waging battles both with authorities and possible suspects. Um, So the the main characters in the case are um, Rebecca, obviously, who's 32, her former boyfriend, a a pharmaceutical executive, uh, Jonah Shacknai, which I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it just sounds like such a cool name. Too bad bad he's a terrible person, obviously, uh, or as we'll get into. Um, His ill-fated son, Max, which we'll get into later, uh, which is the child tragedy, his brother Adam, and San Diego County Sheriff Bill Gore. So, interesting details. There's bruises on Zahao's head and a message scrawled in point, uh, sorry, sorry, in paint on her door. Uh, and I'm going to show you guys this picture because, like I said, this is ruled as a suicide. And this has gone back and forth so many times that the sheriff's department has actually posted images from the crime scene on their... Prepare. Prepare. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah it's about to get crazy. You know yeah, it. Rebe- you know it, Reba Boyd. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, like I said, the Sh- San Diego Sheriff's Department has posted images of the crime scene on on the website state i guess it's like a reaffirmation of the, how much evidence they put out but yeah. look, some of these images are ridiculous like this inscrawled message saying she saved him can you save her and this hmm. is literally written in paint on the door Ooh. and this is supposed well, why to would be, you say this that is supposedly a suicide yeah, Why would you really say looking suicide note? Right? Like how does that that doesn't even make sense? And also yourself in third person in your suicide note. And also they have say. pictures of the balcony, the the outdoor scene showing the rope, um, forehead injuries, fingerprint orientation, a video of the rope tied around the per- a possible hand. Like 
this is post yeah. like this shouldn't be online for anybody oh, to we can, oh yeah but, but we can tra- put all of this on our instagram oh totally obviously yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> we have to do like some sort of like warning but it's also like this is it's, it's, to- it's totally inappropriate to have that out there you know but it, i think it's i think in my opinion, it's the San Diego Sheriff's Department being like, we did our due diligence. We yeah. showed the, this is the evidence you make yeah, your, you know, exactly. We're hiding nothing. So I like, I kind of get it in that sense because people are, like I said, everybody has their own conspiracy theory behind it. Um, so uh, July 13th, 2011, uh, Rebecca Zahau, a medical technician is found bound and gagged below a balcony at the storied seaside Spreckles mansion by Adam Shacknai the brother of her boyfriend, Jonah. Her nude body remains uncovered on the grounds of the mansion for long enough that helicopters easily capture images. Oh. Yeah. Coronado police refers the case to the San Diego County Sheriff's Department as they lack a full-time homicide unit. Uh, so July 16, 2011, Max Shack and I, uh, this is going um, uh, just uh, three years after, uh, Joan, who's six years old at the time, who is Jonah's son, dies at Rady Children's Hospital following a fall at the mansion on July 11th. Uh, Zahau had been watching him, the boy's mother, Adam, and other family uh, arrived in Coronado in the hours preceding Zahau's death. Uh, so the kid dies in the same mansion, you know, yeah. super mm-hmm. close. So, you know, that's, and this is all seems weird that it's found by the brother. Yeah. Um, so September 2nd, 2011, Gore, who is the uh, sheriff, uh, hosts a pre-Labor Day weekend news conference to release Sahau's autopsy and declare that the investigators have found that she hung herself. They determined that she tied her own elaborate bindings and propelled herself from the balcony. November 14th, 2011, the Dr. Phil show takes on the case, really? including results of an independent autopsy following exhumation of Zahau's body. It's the first of many attempts by media to examine her death. Uh, like I said, several, they say from CNN to Oxygen on this uh, article. Um, but yeah, like I said, everybody's <laughs> investigated. There's several podcasts that have jumped into this, but how could you not? This is already It's already a crazy mystery, you know? Yeah. Um, so the investigation also spawned uh, a uh, several true crime books, including Caitlin Rother, who was the, actually the latest that, that I found. Okay. <laughs> so shout out! I want to I wanna do a podcast though where we we rip Doctor Phil apart. Yeah. Like so because <laughs> his insides would be gross. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he is. He yeah. His television. <laughs> television. Oh man. Nice. That was the EVP again. Not just me. Yeah. <laughs> television. Yes, yes Roxana, television. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Keeping up with the conversation. <laughs> Dr. Phil's on television, correct? Good, Roxy. Good. <laughs> um, so June 2013, the mansion where Zahau died sells for $9 million, which is obviously far less than the asking price. Um, apparently, Realtor.com reports the property uh, last sold in 2020 for 11 million. So I guess oh. it went up a little bit. Maybe they found always, out. I think it always goes right. Um, July 2013, the house family, uh, who have consistently stepped out in public to deny the suicide finding, failed to persuade authorities. So they file a $10 million federal lawsuit. Uh, the court refuses to take jurisdiction in forcing the wrongful death case uh, 
uh, to be filed in state court. So February 2018, trial begins after various legal maneuvers that focus the case on Adam, uh, who is a 54-year-old tugboat operator from Memphis. He's accused of hitting Zahao in the head to disable and assault her before eventually binding her and pushing her from the balcony. Young Max Shackney's death has long played a role in both sides in the case. Zahao's family claims that she was killed to avenge him. Uh, while others argue that her sorrow over her injuries led her to kill herself. But like I said, she was bound. They show the way her arms were bound. It doesn't... Wasn't she The video like... claims in the sheriff's department thing, the video claims it shows a person tying themselves similarly, you know, but it doesn't make sense completely, you know? Wasn't she staying overnight in the the brother-in-law was there with her overnight well they don't he he was claimed to have just come by and seen her and it was like that seems weird yeah it seems like he was sent you know like or he was there or he was there and did it yeah, yeah. i mean that's true too yeah, yeah. he was also, wasn't he also there with the little boy fell and died right, right yeah exactly yeah that's another thing is they that was the, he died at the hospital from a fall at the mansion that and it's like well what happened there yeah there's still no real yeah um, so, where was it? Oh, yeah, so, um, like, or they, uh, sorry, claim to avenge while others argue that, uh, sorrows over Yosef, uh, so testifying in his own defense, Adam answered, most certainly not, when asked if he had anything to do with Zahal's death. Um, that's a yes, right? Yeah, because you take the most certainly. <laughs> well, like, well, there's this one later on that's like really like he's just obvious. It's like I can't remember what he says exactly, but when I get there, it's, it's something like like there's there's no way I would have killed her. Like there, I didn't have time or something. You know, like yeah, you know, like something <laughs> like yeah, yeah, yeah like oh, that would have been a waste of my time to do that. You know, or some shit like yeah. that. It's like oh, okay, so you're just an asshole, but you didn't kill her. Yeah, <laughs> it's like oh, that that's real convincing. Uh, so. <laughs> April 2018, uh, which is five years later, uh, jurors vote nine to three, deciding that Adam Shackney was liable in Zahal's death and award $5 million to her family. Her vow, her, he vows uh, he will appeal. One of her sisters, uh, Mary Zahal, a loner, said Rebecca or uh, Zahal was brutally murdered and that she continues to hope that Adam Shackney will face criminal charges because they only got just $5 million. Oh. Um, though the sheriff's department defends its investigation the day of the civil verdict, within two weeks of offic uh, officials agreed to take a new look at the Zahao case, eight months later, Gore announces that the department stands by the original finding of suicide. In an unusual move, the agency continues to maintain web pages devoted to her case, including slides showing evidence collected at the scene. And those are the pictures that I was showing oh, you guys. Because okay. uh, I was like, no way. <laughs> you know, they still pictured like that's that's not right. Um, so February, 2019, uh, Zahal family works with insurers to settle the civil case for $600,000 and asked the court to dismiss it. Adam Shack and I speaking to the media said that though he bore her no ill will, he wouldn't fucking waste my time killing Rebecca Zahal. Wow. That was what, I, that was the quote oh, I was yeah, looking for. That's, that's really dick thing to do not of course i would never kill you know what i mean yeah oh i wouldn't waste, waste my, my time, time killing my that. wife i was like uh what his attorneys who had planned to call for the verdict to be overturned noted that the dismissal erased the jury's decision there is no legal judgment which as it should be saying that mr shack and i did anything wrong one said 
How's it getting pretty loud? It's on one bar. Okay. Get a little bit of slack. Nice. <laughs> nice. Uh, where was I? So August 2019, the Zahao family offers a $100,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of Adam Shacknai for the death. In March of 2021, uh, God, this thing, it's crazy because it's gone over. Sorry, I'm trying to think of the original date now. Jesus, yeah, this, it's so crazy, like courts and stuff, like that, how something oh, can be stretched oh, out years. so long, yeah. you know, and like, and it's it's so, it's, it's so not right, you know, like these people just want to know like what happened, you know, and yeah. like, or just get some type of closure, or, like even like closure, justice. you know, justice. Yeah. yeah, for sure. But like even closure is like even right. hard to get. Like, to know it's, what happened. It's so ridiculous. You thinking your family member killed themselves and. Right. Yeah. And then you'd find out 30 years later that you're right and they didn't. And it's like, but still all that pain, I was yeah. sitting there just yeah, wondering. Yeah, what could we have done? And yeah. it's a difference thinking somebody killed themselves and they were murdered. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then you, then you, then you didn't get to take out your stress and anger on the person that actually caused the pain yeah. even you know like oh man uh so M march 2021 eight months after they sued gore and sheriff department over the denial of the family's request of the investigative records a judge agrees to hear arguments in october uh court attorney or sorry county attorneys however will appeal were appeal court will appear in court in the 10 days prior July 23rd, in an attempt to block the case filed under the California Public Records Act, the county contends the investigative records are exempt from the disclosure law. And on Monday, according to public uh, reports, of course, this is not actual Monday. I got this from an article that was six months ago. Okay. Uh, but I'll get into a little bit. There's After this, there's still even a little bit more, you know, because like I said, the case is still going. Uh, attorneys for the family filed an amended complaint in response to the county. Doug Lerner, who is Zahao's brother-in-law, feed. I am hungry. Well, wasn't she, like, at the house alone, like, watching, like, she was there by herself, and the brother-in-law was over, and, like, her her husband was out of the way. Yeah, that, 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 that's, that's the story, is that he just came over and found yeah. her like that. Okay, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's weird. Um... So Doug Lohner, Zahao's brother-in-law, has said the family's whole goal is to have the case reopened. Ten years on, there will be many observers waiting to see what happens next. Yeah. Uh, and like I said, the case still has legs. And I wanted to pull up, like, uh, another couple uh, articles that kind of get into some other interesting things. Um, they're in um, <clears throat> a, uh, sorry, in May twenty. Uh, 5th, 2021, a private investigator has teamed up with a psychic reader to analyze the actual bed used in the 2011 death of Rebecca Zahao and Coronado. The private eye, Bill Garcia, gained possession of the bed by pure chance. It's what I call the deathbed, the bed that Rebecca was tied to with the red rope, said Garcia. Um, he obtained it <laughs> through a random meeting with a construction worker at a taco shop in Mission Hills. Wait, she was tied to a bed and then well, she... Well, he believes 
that he was touched. That would have been the bed that she was tied to. And then they and, moved her body and hung it over the side of the body. Hour, yeah. yeah. Believed to. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, apparently this man had done remodeling work at the Spreckles mansion in Coronado, uh, where she was found and the bed was given to his construction company. I intimately worked on this case for four and a half years, said Garcia. So when he is, when he said one of his workers had possession of the bed to me, it was really exciting because I felt there was something very important about that bed. There might not be, but it's a bed that was there. You know, Who gave you, it to one of the construction workers? Well, apparently Diane. they were apparently they were remodeling there. You know, oh Diane. Okay. That's it. Yeah, it just popped up the okay. name. But I'm thinking, wouldn't that be a great way to get rid of evidence? That's true. Like yeah. get rid of the bed that she was killed on. That's and true. Have somebody, some random construction worker take. <laughs> That's weird. Um. Garcia had been hired to investigate the death of Rebecca Zahao by insurance companies representing Dinah Shacknai, the mother of six-year-old Max Shacknai, who died after taking a fall on the side of the same oh, mansion. See, even the mom's suspicious right? about the brother-in-law. Right? Isn't that crazy? Mm-hmm. I took pictures of the bed before I collected it. I used gloves. I wrapped it in saran wrap completely, and I put it in my vehicle and took it to my home. What happened next requires an open mind, a psychic reading of the bed in San Carlos inside the private investigator's garage. I opened up the bottom portion of this particular leg on the right side of the bed where the red rope was and put my hands on it. And almost immediately, I connected with Rebecca, said Jackie Bensinger, a psychic reader based out of Hendersonville, North Carolina. She connected with me and told me immediately, yes, I was murdered. Then, just a second later, Max Shacknai appeared, and he said, I want to be with Rebecca. I love her, according to Ben Singer. Believe that, if you will. Um, but I just thought it was interesting, the whole Diane connection with the, the actual mother of Max Shacknai. Wait, not what's something... the mother's name? Uh, wait, was it Diane? No, I said no, Diane. Okay, yeah. Dina. Dinah, sorry. Dinah, okay. Dinah. Oh, shit. I was, like, freaking out there that, for a second. Yeah, <laughs> super uh, uh, During her reading of the bed, Bensinger said she saw how Rebecca was murdered. Rebecca was on the bed. She was lying down. Her eyes seemed kind of fuzzy because sometimes I feel like I'm on the inside of the person. And I looked up and there was a man standing above her. And then he strangled her and she passed. The psychic also believes Max Shacknai was murdered. She tried to connect with the boy a second time. When I connected with him, he was gone. All I picked up from him was light. So he moved on. Oh, good for him. Ben Singer said she could not identify the alleged killers. She believes there may have been two men in the room Suit. at the time of Zahao's death. Ooh, thank you. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, Garcia is worried the case may never be solved, as we all are. Yeah. Uh, I feel that these deaths will be overlooked essentially because of wealth, power, and some yeah. people in law enforcement that don't want to see the truth come out. Black Dahlia, every murder. Anytime. Yeah, it's a rich, yeah, influential exactly, person. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, sorry, there was one more. Uh, so this is December 30th, 2021. Uh, this year, KUSI, who is the KUSI.com, they're the KUSI News. Um, they're just based out of San Diego. So this is, you know, it's a huge story. So it's easy to just yeah. remember Rebecca's the hell. 
um, took a look at the comprehensive evidence uh, left by San Diego County Sheriff's. We also uncovered testimony from a neighbor who heard a woman's scream coming from the mansion the night she died. And we interviewed an audio expert who says there's another voice on the 911 call made the morning Rebecca's body was found. Oh. So now the family will be But who was off. initially on the voice? The brother-in-law. The brother, right? Yeah. Yeah. The okay. yeah. So that means <gasps> there could have been somebody Adam else might there. have been there. Yeah. You know? Or... Maybe Wait, like this brother-in-law Jonah, has Jonah, a yeah. problem with killing people and they're trying to protect them. You know, mm-hmm. or yeah, or you could, yeah, exactly. That's true too. Uh, so now the family will be facing off against Sheriff Bill Gore in court, trying to get documents they say will prove her death was a murder. The case is moving forward, but has been delayed by Gore's legal team. It was scheduled for January, but now has been pushed back to May, 2022. Oh. So I think I want to come back to this case later on, Yeah, let's you know, cause I think it. it should be like yeah. a to be continued thing, obviously. Yeah. Because this is not finished, but it's it seems like it's getting there. You know, like it's well, pretty slowly. interesting. Yeah, yeah, that was an mm-hmm. interesting case to look up. I, yeah. I you definitely, uh, if you guys want to look at the pictures later on, let me know. I'll show well, you. Well, you like, said you wanted more. to get deep into the Spreckles mansion too, and that's true too. Yeah, the Klaus Spreckles was like uh, he created all of this shit, like from Hotel Del Coronado to everywhere. I, I don't know. That would that would make speckles. sense because there's a Spreckles area out by San Francisco, so okay, that, would, yeah. that would make a lot of sense actually. Maybe that I've driven same. through Spreckles. Yeah. Before. But yeah, he yeah, came out from like day. Germany or something. But yeah, I'll totally get into the Spreckles thing too. I didn't put it in there because I didn't want. Get I, into I, it. Go ahead. No, get there's, into there's it. A, no, I didn't put it in there, so I don't. I don't have it. He doesn't yeah, have the yeah, info. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. But I was looking into it because I was thinking, but I also thought we're going to have four, four people podcasting now. Rake. Explain. No, Drake. like oh, the flesh. Oh, jeez. Jeez. <laughs> Jesus. All right, I'll explain it. Uh, Klaus Spreckles was... Uh... <laughs> I think you I'm going to break your flesh. Get into a Google. Yeah, it's you either it's explain Wikipedia or it's going to break Spreckles your flesh. real quick. There we go. I thought it said break flesh. No, it's just, break. <laughs> just Wikipedia like, calls sprinkles real quick and just read the first paragraph. <laughs> and then we'll take a break from our to uh talk about spooky bean shop. No, I'll come I'll come back to it. No, no, I'm gonna no, have to, no, no, do it now. I wanna just Wikipedia. The ghost wants you to explain yes. or it's gonna rake your flesh. Was <laughs> it not clear? Yeah. All right, all right. Klaus We'll edit it in. It's fine. All this weird, awkward pause. We'll edit it out. Sorry, I don't really have any of this stuff together. Just do like a weird, uh, like <laughs> two sentences on Klaus Spreckles in the Spreckle Mansion. Um, Adolf Spreckles was the son of sugar tycoon Klaus Spreckles. He helped expand the sugar business to Hawaii, 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 and Salinas. Oh, see, there we go. That's yep. where we get sprinkles. Okay. Yep. Do it again, but like you care. <laughs> Adolf B. Spreckles was the son of sugar tycoon Klaus Spreckles. He had helped expand the sugar business to Hawaii and Salinas. Adolf married Alma de Brettville on May 11, 1908. She was many, year younger, many years younger than he was. <laughs> they didn't have to put that, but they put that. That's great. Uh, the property for the Spreckles Mansion was bought by Adolf as a Christmas gift for his wife, Alma. They had been living in Sausalito, 
which is a place oh, up in San Francisco, up oh, by okay. San Francisco. Oh, that's right. They're the Marine Mammal Center. Continue. Uh, to build the mansion, they combined several prime lots and eight Victorian homes were moved to Jackson and Washington streets. The house is speculated to cost around $1 million to build in 1913. Wow. That's a lot of money. That is. It took two years to complete. At the time it was built, six counties were visible from the mansion's circular observatory. Wow, that's crazy. San Mateo County, San Clara County, Alameda County, Contra Costa County, and Marin County. There are still views of the San Francisco Bay from the mansion and is located across the street from Lafayette Park. After the Spreckles Mansion was built, Alma went to Europe to stock the new house with 18th century antiques. On the same trip, Alma met with Auguste Rodin and bought 13 of his bronze sculptures to San Francisco for the Panama Pacific International Exposition, which later inspired the creation of the California Palace of the Legion of Honor. The suite for Alma de Bretville Spreckles featured Louis XIV's furniture, and the suite for Adolf Spreckles featured Colonial Journal colonial georgian furniture the home reportedly features 55 rooms and a louis the 14th ballroom 55 rooms yeah right that's a, that's a mansion i guess yeah. adolph spreckles died on june 28 1924 what alin a-l-l-y-n capital oh a. like a name okay yeah uh and alma inherited his empire and the mansion alma died in 1968 leaving the house to her two daughters um, after the 1968, after 1968, the mansion was divided into four units. Daniel Steele purchased the property Ooh. and restored it to a single-family residence. Seriously? Steele added a very tall hedge in front of the mansion, blocking the architecture for the sake of privacy. Well, no, I actually I looked like that up, too. Apparently, Daniel Steele is the... Yeah, you're right. Oh, that's people probably, in the hallway. I think that's what it was. Yeah. I guess I, I, I don't think they're ghosts. Yeah, but they may be drunk. That was really. I felt. I thought I felt something over there. I thought it was like Teresa yelling in, like, <laughs> in the bathroom, but I don't think so. Okay, that was just too normal. Yeah, it's just people yelling in the bathroom. It's okay. Drunk people in in. We're gonna be those drunk people. We are gonna be those drunk people. Yeah, I looked, right. up, I looked up Danielle Steele. Apparently, she's the best-selling author. Oh, oh, yeah, I know who she is. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've, read, I've read her books. It's oh, like, no, I knew she was an author, oh, but I didn't yeah. realize she's the best-selling author. Oh, like, yeah. Like, ever. Oh, yeah. Like, she's sold, like, hundreds of Well, how come movies. I've never read any of her books? Because you're not know. into romantic because, novels. Like, it's kind of hard to not read one of her books. They're just everywhere. I mean, I did. I probably have, so. Mine was, like, about, like, some chick in New Orleans and the bayou. why you guys want to go to New Orleans? Yeah, absolutely. She wants to get her romantic novel on. Oh, well, okay. when it's like not romance, romance, but like horror romance kind of thing. It's yeah. Can you just read the last three sentences of your thing? No, that was last. Yeah, but that was can you read them to make sure that we weren't yelling or people from the hallway were yelling. Okay. Um, after 1968, the mansion was divided into four units. Daniel Steele purchased the property and restored it to a single-family residence. Steele added a very tall hedge in front of the mansion, blocking the architecture for the sake of privacy. And now a word from our sponsor. Spooky Bean Shop on Etsy sells the cutest, most adorable resin pieces of jewelry that I've ever seen. (laughs) 
Um, I absolutely love the earrings that I got. They are little pink coffins. I know I gave you guys earrings earlier today, and I hope you like them. Love them. Yes. Yeah, Teresa's got little... Uh, and that knives with blood on them. They're Ooh. very hot. I love them. Like, and and I have... Oh, I have... Uh, they're like popsicles, but they're skulls, and yeah. they're melting, so it's ice screams oh, yeah. oh i, was I get it skulls. Yeah. or pops of skulls uh, pops yeah. of skulls ice <laughs> screams they're super cute i like your knife earrings they're yeah. very um they're like bloody too bloody knife earrings find spooky bean shop on etsy um and contact her for all of your cute little resin pieces of jewelry that's true yeah. Yeah. or or, or keychains i got a or really keychains. dope keychain yeah Ooh, keychains yeah. you're it's a really cool little you can't find us at claire's no no, no. Uh, yeah, I actually have a really cool keychain. It was like a owl, but it's like one of those ones where you put your fingers through it and it's like for self-defense. Yes. My dad saw it. He was like, you could you could hurt someone with this. And I was like, that's the point. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's, that's the point. That's why we got the big bucks. There we go. <laughs> Spooky bean shop on Etsy, as in the last name Bean may or may not be related to Patrick and Tia Bean, who may or may not be the host of this podcast. No. <laughs> That's a mystery. Is it a mystery? It's a mystery. It's a mystery, history, mystery, and something else. And, and yeah. other things. Spooky Bean Shop <laughs> on Etsy. Awesome. They have your like, earrings. Yeah, that's good. They are, they are super cute. They are. Really, and also do for them. Yeah, for the spooky <laughs> bean in your life. <laughs> silence. Okay. It just said silence. Uh, I guess it's trying to shut us up. Wow. Oh, okay. Dear. Never mind. We'll stop making fun of the ghosts. Right. Yeah. No uh, more. No more balls. Speaking of ghosts, today we went on a field trip. Hold on one second. Is that? Do I need to move closer? Does it need to move closer? Uh, okay. Okay. Start over. Speaking of ghosts, let me move this stuff out of the way then. Okay, take two. Uh, speaking of ghosts, we went on a field trip today to America's most haunted house, the Whaley House. Ooh, so cool. Whaley. Also, so Although the tour guide outside of the Whaley House was not exactly in. Yeah, I couldn't understand. I couldn't determine if she was drunk or just unenthusiastic. Yeah. Well, I, think I don't think she was drunk. Yeah, it was she might have been new. She might have been not well informed. Not that she wasn't well informed. She did seem really vague. Yeah, it yeah. was. But I was glad that she was vague because I didn't want her to. That's true. Yeah, I guess we kind of lucked out. Right? Blow the wad on what I was going to be talking about. She did. She did a good job of just like touching on some of the aspects without yeah. going into too much detail, which usually you would want them to go into detail. But at this point in time, I was really yeah. wanting her to be, as the ghost said, silent. Yeah. Right. I want to tell the stories. Well, now I can go back. Ooh, bedroom. <gasps> is, is the ghost hitting on me? <laughs> is it? It's okay. in the bedroom. No. You've I mean, got the bigger bed, Roxana. Well, we'll switch tonight. I'll, I'll sleep in the That's haunted hilarious. cat bed. If and the ghost can, yeah. is fucking in it. 
You don't want to sleep in that bed. Trust me. I'll sleep in it. That's fine. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I felt like she was surprised that we were excited about the Wheelie House, and we're like, "But we're here at the Wheelie House." Was, yeah, yeah, we're <laughs> we know we know what we're doing. We know, so yeah. it it has been said to be one of the most haunted houses in the United Illegal. States. No, no, no. That's fine. That's right. Interesting. That's no, no. Yeah, that's fine. The ghost said illegal. Interesting. Um, It's weird because I'm like, it can't be the most haunted house in the entire world because there's so many places that are just so old. That's true. But there is some validity to why that area is haunted long before the house may have not long. Oh, but but there is before the house was ever built because even. Uh, before it was used for the public executions, it used to be the site of an old cemetery, or that's the rumor. Uh, and then it became a site where they would hang people. And this was before the house was ever built. So you can understand why the land might have thought to have been haunted. Uh, so uh, there was a very infamous hanging. And I'm going to just start from chronological order, and then I'll go back and talk about the ghosts. But one of the most infamous hangings is that of Yankee Jim, uh, real name James Robinson. So he was sentenced to death. And guess why he might have been sentenced to death? Just throw out some things of... His race. Because of race? No, he was a white guy. Okay. Um, um, yeah. Being poor. Poor? Kind of. Kind of. A little bit. It's, it is a bit for being poor. Being yeah. poor Stealing and- cattle. Not cattle, definitely oh, trying yeah. to steal he something. He stole a loaf of bread. Uh, <laughs> almost as sad. He he stole a rowboat. I mean, to be fair, it was the only rowboat in oh. San Diego, which I says says more about San Diego than That's Yankee Jim. Yeah. My but friends and I used to steal. <laughs> no, what did it say? <laughs> a current? Like occur like something occurred okay <laughs> the ghost wants to chime in we should not be rude okay. to the ghost yeah, of, yeah. yeah. yes yeah, okay. my friends and i used to steal diggies those are the, the tiny boat to get to the big yeah. boat yes uh-oh you would have been sentenced to death back in the day Damn. we didn't steal dinghy well we would steal the dinghies for like 10 minutes and like go out and row on the dinghy and then bring the dinghy back and put it back where it would was people done died because of that yankee jim yeah. died because of that and in fact they were saying that throughout the entire thing it didn't really hit him he kept thinking this has got to be a joke and the saddest thing was the uh, executioner with his was his um father-in-law okay oh, damn. so there's already bad feelings about him dying for stealing a boat and then they didn't even hang him with the proper rope. It was actually a little bit too long. So it didn't snap his neck when he was supposed to, you know, he was. they were being hung off the back of the cart, kind of right in the center of where the Whaley House is now. When you go into the Whaley House, uh, you walk down a hallway and to the right is kind of like the living and tea room. There's this curved arch uh like a light wood we'll put pictures of it on the instagram i took pictures of it but they say it was that area where they would do the hangings um so he was stood on the back of a wagon or a cart i should say and they were going to hang him the rope was too long so it didn't snap his neck and he was able to balance himself on the edge of the wagon until somebody had to just kick him off the wagon now the force of the kick 
caused him to swing like a pendulum back and forth. And then he slowly strangled to death. And it is said either between 15 to 45 minutes. What? Okay. Oh so this God. was a horrible, oh tragic God. death. It was not happy. So he's like getting like little bits of air on every swing. Right. He but is then like, trying, oh my God, trying to live because he doesn't believe he deserves to die for stealing a rowboat, something that T and her friends da, did, so. Dinghies. Dinghies. <laughs> but, however... Well, I mean, what if it was the only dinghy, she wouldn't have been like that. according to Robert Wagner and Natalie Wood, they would name their dinghies. The dinghy was named the Valiant. Well, Natalie Wood didn't have a great history. history with, don't you remember? It was called the Valiant. Was the... Anyways. <laughs> yeah. Just remember to name your dinghy, guys. Um, your <laughs> so Yankee Jim was hung in 1852, and it was said that Thomas Whaley actually witnessed this particular hanging. So Yankee Jim, in his dying moments, saw Thomas Whaley, mm -hmm. I guess. That's what they were saying. Now, Thomas Whaley then moved from the East Coast out to the West Coast because of the gold rush, and he wanted to be a part of all the prosperity that was happening. But like I tour, our tour guide said today, he wasn't into mining the gold himself, but selling the supplies to the folks uh, that were mining. So yeah, he came out with his, uh, his brother also came out with him. And we'll talk a little bit about his brother later, um, his brother Henry. Right? Or Harry. I can't read my handwriting. I think it's Henry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Henry. Uh, they came out here and they opened up the general store, basically, that would sell the goods and everything. It was called Whaley and Whaley. Uh, and he also had a brick manufacturing, what you call it? Where, where they? Factory. He had a brick factory, too, as well. They would make bricks. So he was able to buy the land cheap because of the history of the hangings happening on it. Um, he built the house using bricks from his own brickyard. And it was completed. And they moved him and Anna Eloise, his wife, moved into the house on August 22nd of 1857. And while living in the house, they had three children. So Francis Hinton, that's his middle name. 1854. Then Thomas Whaley Jr. was born in 1856. That's kind of an F.U. to the oldest child to name the second one, the Thomas Whaley Jr., in my opinion. But it's funny. I always thought about that. Yeah. yeah. I was like, what is that? What is that? Is that like a, is that, yeah, it's an obvious slight to anyone? Oh, but don't worry. Tom, Thomas, uh, he, bad things happen to him. What? Don't, don't worry. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll get into it. Oh, <laughs> see, again, was that random word? Don't worry, ghost. I'll get into what happens to Thomas. And then there, the third was Anna Amelia. She was born in 1858. Now, Thomas Whaley Jr. caught scarlet fever and died in 1958 in the house. And he was only 18 months old. For those of you that don't know, scarlet fever... You can actually still get it today. But the thing is, it's a bacterial infection. It's usually... Uh, some people, when they get uh, strep throat, uh, that can also be the bacteria that causes scarlet fever. But now we have antibiotics, and usually it's caught in time. Uh, if you don't treat it nowadays, you can still, again, suffer serious like damage to various organs and that kind of thing. 
and death can also happen as well. But most people aren't dying of scarlet fever anymore because of the antibiotics. But back, you know, 1858, unfortunately, this is what would happen. So that was the first death that happened in the Whaley house. And again, they moved in on 1857. Oh, wait. Big. Um, what did it say? Big. Big? Okay. Uh, and then in 1858, like a year later, one of their children dies. So, okay. Um, not too long after that, uh, the general store burns down from arson. So somebody went and burned down that general store after their baby died from yeah. scarlet fever. So they decide to get out Rude. of Sandy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Ghost, you are on right. point. Wow. <laughs> burned down the <laughs> The ghosts of uh, Del Coronado have great input when podcasting. If you ever want to podcast with ghosts, Come to the Coronado. There we go. Uh, Whaley's moved back. uh, They went up to San Francisco in 1859. uh, And they had three more children. uh, George Hay Ringold, 1860. Violet Eloise. What did it say? Fart. (laughs) Okay, now it also said fart when we were in the house. And what is funny is that the ghost of George Hay Ringold is said to haunt the house. Maybe it was him. Maybe he was the one talking about farts. Maybe he was a very gassy George. Let's fart again. You eat that. (laughs) Yeah. No. You don't need to shout that out. Well, it's always still there, but I was like, I don't know. Maybe it just sounded out of its relevant. Like, how do you determine that? But but the fact that it said fart when we were in the house, I think that's right. Yeah, right. Mine said smell and eggs, so I think it was a kind. It's like a fart, but it was a polite way of saying fart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, 1862, Violet Eloise is born. And then in 1864, Corinne Lillian is born. Uh, on October 21st of 1868, there was the Hayward earthquake, which was between 6.3 and a 7.7 magnitude uh, that damaged their San Francisco home. And they, en- and they ended up having to come back to San Diego. So they moved back into the, the Whaley house on December 12th of 1868. Nothing really much happens with any of the deaths of anybody. Um, Then about 20-ish years later in 1882, both Violet Eloise and Anna Amelia were married in Old Town. So Violet married George T. Berticelli. Oh no, Bertolacci. He's a jerk. Uh, Bertolacci. Uh, Anna married John T. Whaley. And you're wondering, Whaley, that's the same last name she does. Surely they can't be related. Uh, Oh, oh, but they are. (laughs) So John was the son of Henry Hurst Whaley. Yep, that's right. The son of Henry, who I mentioned before, was Thomas's brother. She married her first cousin. 
but yet she was the one that didn't get screwed over in the marriages. <laughs> um, a little bit on Henry, because he was kind of like the opposite of Thomas. So Thomas's father, when they're in the East Coast, was a successful businessman. Thomas kind of picked up on that being a successful businessman. Much. Uh, Henry was known to be loud and drunk and would overcharge the customers. I don't know. Maybe that had to do with the general store getting burned down. Like maybe it wasn't a slight against Thomas, but maybe, you know, Henry. Um, anyway, so that's that's on Henry. Uh, now, Violet's husband turned out to be a con artist who just wanted her dowry. Mm-hmm. And again, for you youngins out there that are like, what's a dowry? <laughs> uh, back in the old days, uh, when a woman got married, sometimes her family would throw in like cattle or land or gold or some sort of payment. It was kind of a way for like the new couple to have a nest egg so that they could have something to build upon. Or if something ever happened, uh, that the... the the wife or the the daughter and her husband had support or had some sort of financial support. Uh, but what George T. Bertolacci basically just wanted that dowry, take the money and ran. They were on a trip and she woke up one day and her husband was gone and basically just let her, left her like a, a letter basically telling her that this is the truth of what happened. Sorry, but I'm not interested in being married to you anymore mm -hmm. so when she came home she was kind of looked down upon because she came home unchaperoned and i think that was not really fair to her because it wasn't like she intended to be unchaperoned it was her chaperone up and left her uh, but she was kind of still looked upon down upon that she was also looked down upon because her husband had abandoned her and now she's going to be getting a divorce and society made it seem like it was something that was her fault, that she had done something wrong. And you have to understand, she's in her early 20s when this is all happening. So she comes home humiliated, publicly shamed, and she's just very, very depressed. Uh, so then on August 19th of 1885, she committed suicide. She took her father, Thomas's thirty-two caliber, into the backyard by the outhouse and shot herself into the heart. So then Thomas found her, brought her into the parlor that we saw with that, the large arch where the location of Yankee Jim's death, um, she died in that area about 15 minutes later and she was only 22 years old. So during when you said shot in the heart, it said reflect, then it said Freddy, Interesting. Hmm. Now, Violet left a suicide note. Exercise. <laughs> okay. Uh, mad from life's <laughs> history, swift to death's mystery, glad to be hurled anywhere, anywhere out of this world. Uh, after that, that was kind of a huge... Um, <sighs> Again, humiliation for the family. Her youngest sister, Corinne, was engaged, but after the horrible suicide of her sister, the engagement was broken off. Again, it was almost as if they're, they're blaming these women for things that 
other people are doing and they're the ones having to take on that humiliation. Mm. That was not okay. Um, and then there was also this a big history thing uh, between them wanting to move the, not the capital, but the, they wanted to move into Newtown, San Diego, because that's where things were happening. There was this big political fight over you know, old town and new town and where should the new center be? And eventually the new towners won. So the family moved out of the house in 19 or moved out of the house to 933 State Street. Uh, Thomas Whaley died from bad health in 1890 and Anna died in 1905 in Modesto. So they didn't die in the actual house. The family, the rest of the ones that were still alive, moved back into the house in 1912, and Corinne, the youngest, lived there until she died in 1953. Um, now, we, when we visited there, we saw that there was a, a theater upstairs. Uh, so, yes, it did become the first commercial theater in 1868 when Thomas Whaley rented the upstairs to the Tanner Troupe. Now, Thomas Tanner died 17 days after opening, and the troupe disbanded a few months later. And we actually went and we visited uh, not only the gravesite of Yankee Jim, uh, but Thomas Tanner was there. And it mentioned that on his, whatchamacallit. So did you get to like at least put on a few his shows? Headstone. headstone, there we go. But it was like made out of wood. Yeah, yeah they, they made, they did on. a few shows, yeah. Yeah, they did shows. Yeah, I'm assuming they had a show ready to go. Yeah, okay. and then the the so he died uh, in December twenty second. Uh, the band the troop disbanded in January, so just like not too long afterwards. Uh, then in nineteen sixties, the house became open to the public and then that's where we kind of come in. Mm -hmm. Now, there have been reported hauntings. And again, this is all the way back from when the first, uh, when the Whaley house was first built. So the Whaley's would hear heavy footsteps, uh, passerby said that they saw apparitions in the windows and where this house is placed. Like we were super shocked of how central it was in downtown. Mm -hmm. Like it's right there on the sidewalk. So people can just easily, they're walking right by the house. So it's, they are able to see into the windows. And this was, again, back when it was first built, people are saying they can see things in the windows. And we even talked to one of the the guides there, Annabelle, who was sit, sitting in the courtroom. Shout out to Annabelle. She was the good tour guide. Yes, she just was the, very well she informed. She's not the one that we accused of being drunk. <laughs> just letting you know. At the front. Yeah, she might have been a little Pat, you're drunk on your tours. All the time. Oh, all the, the time. time. Jacqueline, apparently, is drunk on the tours all the time, according to the EVP. Oh, that, that's yeah. what they're saying? Just came out. We don't, I don't remember the name of device. the device. Yeah. Pat is not Catacomb. Actually, Ooh. Pat is not actually drunk on his tours. No, that we're just joking. Right, yeah. Thanks. No, none yet. Pasta. However, when we ran our tours in Hollywood, he may or may not have been drunk a few times. I mean, we that was different. That was, that was at Hollywood. Yeah. There were bars. That was outside. 
Yeah. It was, it was, it was outside. It was outside. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. Where the world throw, was different. Yeah, if I needed to throw it up, it was something. Yeah. We just, you know, go into a, a trash can. 33 taps was, had 33 motherfucking taps. Well, of course they should. If they didn't have 33 taps, people would riot. Right. You'd have to take this. Yeah, you would have to change it. tap one of the taps. That's true. <laughs> um, so back to the story. Uh, talking about how close the house is to the sidewalk. People were walking by. Uh, Yankee Jim was known to leave footprints and make chilling noises throughout the house. Uh, the tour guide, Annabelle, also talking about how she's heard heavy footsteps right. uh, in areas where guests are not allowed, doors being opened and closed, things being moved around. So this was when Anna Whaley was living there. So the, the house has been haunted since the very beginning. After baby Thomas died, there were reports of hearing a baby crying in the house. Uh, after Violet's death, People would say they feel a very sad perfume. female presence in the area and smell perfume of, I believe it was Anna's, but yeah, they would smell perfume in the house, one of her favorite perfumes. That is creepy. Um, now, Violet's ghost had an interaction with a police officer. So there was a call about... a. A crying woman that was in front of the Whaley house. And again, this is right in downtown area. There's a lot of traffic, not, not a lot of traffic around because everything closes at 9 p.m. But it's not, this house is not secluded. It's not back somewhere amongst the woods. It's like right out there. So seeing a woman crying out front, you're going to call the cops because you don't know if she's drunk. You don't know if she's distressed because she's pretty much right there out on the sidewalk. So the cop goes to respond to this call and he finds her in the backyard. And again, it, we, we went there and it's not too hard to see the backyard area from the sidewalk because everything is pretty compact. So he goes into the backyard area and he sees a woman Texas. wearing period. What, what did it say? Texas. Oh, I Maybe the cop was from Texas. A uh, cop found the woman wearing period clothing and crying. Uh, he called out to her and she turned and smiled at him. And when he shined his flashlight on her, she vanished. Now, the cop did not report this until after he had retired. In his retirement letter, that's when he finally revealed what had happened in that incident. Because you can understand that seems really crazy. Now, that's not the only Whaley ghost that has had an encounter with the cops. Anna, the mother's ghost, uh, can be seen in the parlor wearing a, a gingham green dress. Uh, there was an employee that was closing for the evening. And while he was putting in the security code, he saw her in the parlor. He saw a woman in the parlor wearing a green dress and he got so scared that he didn't complete the code and actually just ran out of the house. Now, because he didn't complete the code, it actually triggered the alarm. So then the police showed up and they went in and they confirmed that they did see a woman wearing a green dress in that parlor room, but then she vanished and she was nowhere to be seen. 
sometimes Thomas Whaley himself, senior, not the baby, has also been seen. And he is known for blowing cigar smoke into people's faces. That's that's nice. Yeah. Sure. Um, and even the ghosts of the family dog and the cat have been spotted on the ground. So that's and um, they say that the ghosts of all the other family members, uh, all the other brothers and sisters have also appeared on the ground. So that's why it so has been dubbed. Family. Yeah. As America's most haunted house. And I think it, it started off with Yankee Jim. Yeah. He was one of the first ones. And I don't know, maybe there was something, maybe he cursed the land or something in that no matter where they die, they all kind of end up right back there. Yeah. Um, Damn you, Yankee Jim! Well, no, not his, that's not his fault. <laughs> like you'd be pissed too if that's if that was a horrible, horrible death. Um, <laughs> so that was the Whaley House. You can visit it. You can do your own self-guided tour and take pictures. Uh, we took some pictures and some EVPs. Okay. We'll, you know, we'll post them. Okay. Uh, didn't really see anything. I took pictures where other people had uh, experienced. You found a vortex, though. I didn't way. find it. I just, somebody it's, it's told, that said that there is a vortex a there. Vortex. Yeah, I so. found it on M2. No. Um, oh, well, I posted on Instagram that you did. Oh, so. no. Okay, <laughs> no. well, that's a lie. Uh, in the courtroom, because Thomas Whaley had rented out a portion of the building to be uh, one of San Diego's courtrooms uh, in the jury section up there and kind of the furthest corner from the door is said to be some sort of vortex. And I don't know if maybe they go into it on the ghost hunting tour say, that we yeah, kept maybe, seeing because yeah. they said something about seeing vortexes and it's basically behind where Annabelle is. Yes. Yeah. Annabelle, the tour guide, not the dog. Footsteps upstairs. Mm -hmm. That's what she yeah, yeah. Commonly, yeah. Yeah, and that all the employees have yeah. experienced. Everybody's experience is different, um, but all the employees Present. have experienced something. Um, I don't think I experienced anything supernatural myself, but I think I took some good pictures uh, that we'll post. And yeah, yeah. I looked through all the pictures that I took. I didn't see anything. I think, but it may be if yeah, the so. listeners, maybe they might find something. Who That's knows? That's true, yeah. We'll be so I was supposed to do the history of Old Town San Diego, and I didn't <laughs> um, because uh, I went off on a tangent and I also ran out of time. Because sorry for um, organizing this wonderful vacation weekend for everyone. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I ran out of time doing this for y'all. And that means I wasn't able to do the research that I wanted to. But then as I was doing the research and looking at my phone on the drive over here, <laughs> I came across this really interesting tidbit about San Diego. So in 1912, San Diego had the free speech fights, which I thought was very interesting. So from, uh, da, 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 the, okay, from July 11th, 1912, edition of the IWW Red Little Song, song Books, 
industrial workers of the world. In the edition of the industrial workers of the world. Little Red Songbook. The first stanza, We're Bound for San Diego. Here we go. So, I'm going to start my notes out with this little poem that they wrote. In the town called San Diego, when the workers try to talk, the cops will smash them with a sap and tell them, take a walk. They throw them in a bullpen and feed them rotten beans. They call that law and order in that city, so it seems. So basically, San Diego may or may not have been the best when it came to free speech. Mm. You know, so no offense, San Diego, I'm having a great time right now. <laughs> but uh, by the beginning of the 20th century, growing confrontations between the working class and their employees caused suspicious suspicion and animosity both within and against the workers. Striking workers had taken militant action, which culminated in the Haymarket riot in Chicago. In, so, in, 18, in 1886 at Haymarket Square, where is Haymarket Square? Do you it know? is. Yes, I do. It is right off of the Loop, uh, just right off of uh, downtown. So it's in the West Loop, to be specific. Yes, it's just off of downtown area, like about five minutes. From downtown. So in 1886 at Haymarket Square, Illinois, in the United States, <laughs> uh, it, it began as a peaceful rally in support of workers striking for an eight-hour work day. Yes, yes. Which is normal. For uh, us now. Yeah, for us now. Because they did. Yeah. Except we still did an 11-hour day the other day. We hear day. of it, but you get extra money when that happens, though. You're supposed to. You, you're supposed to. <laughs> right? No, but yes. So anyways, well, uh, anyway, yeah. some be... of us get extra money <laughs> over eight hours. Richard, if you're listening to unions. this, I will be talking unions. to you. <laughs> unions. My not. union requires I get he paid. He says he listens, yes, but he's yes. not. Mm -hmm. I guess we'll uh, know for sure. Yeah. We'll know for sure <laughs> if you're listening. Uh, the day after, <laughs> the day after, police killed one and injured several workers. Uh, the Great Southwest Railroad, Railroad Strike of 1886 was a labor union strike involving more than 200,000 workers and was crushed and destroyed by the Knights of Labor. Knights of Labor, or K of L, officially and officially Noble and Holy Order of the Knights of Labor was an American labor federation active in the late 19th century, especially in the 1800s. It operated in the United States as well as Canada and had chapters in Great Britain and Australia. Coincided uh, with the birth of the Conservative American Federation of Labor in the Western United States, the Western Federation of Miners inherited the mantle of militant unionism, challenging capital in strikes from Cripple Creek, which is a place, mm -hmm. Crip, Cripple Creek <laughs> to Canada. Cripple Creek. Yep. <laughs> I feel sorry for the people from Cripple Creek. Oh, yeah. Many communities sought to limit the spread of union philosophy by revoking rights granted by the United States Constitution. 
particularly the freedom of speech granted by the First Amendment. So basically, they're like, well, if you don't get to say what you want to say, then we don't have a problem here, basically. But everyone should have that right, even if I don't agree with you. Mm -hmm. Even if you say stupid, ignorant shit, you still have the right to say that stupid, ignorant shit. I know. (laughs) They get to, but yes. You still get to, I guess, print whatever you want on your t-shirt with too many words. (laughs) I am a Scorpio man with male rights to guns and girlfriend I fight (laughs) and hit and whatever. Whatever you want to write on your t-shirt front and back. One of the most brutal and significant of the free speech fights occurred in Sting stingery neighborhood of san diego home to the city's undesirables the san diego common council had passed ordinance to curb wobbly soapbox or orientations resulting in san diego free speech in the iww class okay sorry i'm already fucking this up (laughs) So wobblies were basically what the IWW was called. They were oh, the wobblies, that which were stands for um, International Workers of the World. Yeah, they were or, called the wobblies. Or I won't work. I won't work. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, different one. <laughs> <laughs> different IWW. Resulting in San Diego's free speech fight, in which IWW clashed with law enforcement and vigilantes who were inciting to violence by the local the local newspapers. So the free speech fight officially began on January 8th, 1912, when the San Diego Common Council passed ordinance number 4623, which called for a restricted zone of 49 square blocks, more than which was requested by San Diegans in the middle of San Diego in passing all of Soapbox Row. So Soapbox Row was basically where the undesirables or like the poor people would go. And to Soapbox meant you would like stand on your Soapbox and you would like shout out and you would like protest and you would say, this is how I feel. The, you know, corporate America is this and that. And like they would express themselves from their little Soapboxes. Now it's like slam poetry. Uh, no, yeah. yeah or you're like, <laughs> no, I was thinking the closest. People do, it's yeah. more online. They get yeah. out their online soapboxes. There you go. There but you at go. the time, they would pass out pamphlets. Yeah. They would talk on their soapbox. They would express themselves. And there was an area in San Diego called Soapbox Row, mostly because this is with the poor area of San Diego. Mm-hmm. And basically, San Diego... Uh, so, uh, it, let me get, keep going. Um, mm-hmm. where was I? The ordinance came as a, uh, encompassing soapbox row. The ordinance came as a result of recommendation given by San Diego grand jury and a petition signed by 85 prominent citizens and property owners who had hoped to prohibit free speech in a seven square block zone centered around fifth and E. The meeting blocked traffic. It was officially argued 
and that necessitated an ordinance for the immediate preservation of the peace, health, and safety, and one of emergency. So basically, they decided for a seven-block radiance, free speech was no longer allowed. Oh, boy. Because that's a thing, <laughs> and we right. can, apparently, we can just take one of the First Amendment, the first amendment, and we're going to just strip it for seven blocks of San Diego. Fantastic. <laughs> this is what we're doing. 1912. Yeah. Um, so, the initial punishment for violating the ordinance was punishable by a 25 to $100 fine and or 30 days imprisonment. Prior to the passage of the ordinance, the Wobblies Single taxers and socialists signed a 250-person petition in which they called for an allowance of unrestricted free speech. The effort countered the petition previously submitted by the San Diego Grand Jury and the high-powered of San Diegan citizens, but to no avail. So, the people did not want this, but the government did. <laughs> right? <laughs> Fantastic. Let's just take the speech away. Like, honestly, I don't agree with half of your opinions out there. Okay. Like, the world is flat, but you have the right <laughs> to say it. And I guess, <laughs> like, sully the intelligence of other people by your words out there, however you so desire. Okay? And that is just how I'm going to put that. You can, you can do whatever you want because you have the right to do so. And I will fight for your right to do so, even though I don't agree with you and am slightly mad at you. <laughs> yeah. So there was a period of uncertainty during which the council delayed its decision. The council may have simply been searching for affirmation from the general public in order to avoid widespread conflict and dismay throughout the city. Some council members believed that a referendum would show that the majority of San Diegans favored speaking anywhere at any time, which they should have. Like most people do. <laughs> I'll agree that like free speech is something you should have, but you should also be personally responsible for the things that you put out there. Mm -hmm. You know, you should know that words have power, words have influence, and you should have personal responsibility for those things. And some people don't, but you, I guess, have the right to choose what words you believe or not believe when, or whatever. Okay, I digress. Anyways, <laughs> the council finally found a reason to pass the ordinance on the evening of January 6th. 1912, the socialists and single taxers were holding a soapbox event on the street when an off-duty constable and a real estate man, R.J. Walsh, this guy, threw his car into a crowd at the closed-off soapbox road. With his horn blaring, he attempted to disrupt the ordinators, ordinated, orators the people speaking <laughs> his car was mobbed and his tires were slashed as they should be because he fucking drove into yeah, a crowd right, of fucking people yeah the police intervened 
and two days later, the San Diego Common Council passed Ordinance 4623 with an emergency clause that caused for the immediate cessation of public free speech rights, sidestepping the customary 20-day implement wait period. The free speech fight had officially begun. That's fucked up, though, right? Like, am I the only one? No, like, no, when no, I read no. this, okay, when I read this, I was like, what? This is like, this, this, this sucks, <laughs> you know? Like, I'm sorry. Like, this is, this is how people get mad, <laughs> you know? Anyways, California Free Speech League was created on January 16th, 1912, with support of socialist wobblies, church groups, and AFL and other trade unions. The league attempted to take legal action stand the free speech restrictions by holding up the Constitution and defending the right of non-property owning peoples. The league also hired E.E. E. Kirk as an attorney, attorney to provide some legal leverage against the law and its enforcement. After passage of free speech restrictions, the Wobblies and other groups began testing the Ordinance. At a typical IWW street meeting, the police left the Wobblies undisturbed and merely regulated themselves to traffic and pedestrian direction. Indeed, the Wobblies and the Socialists believed that they had already won back their free speech rights, but law enforcement was simply adhering to a general accepted 30-day grace period after the ordinance was enacted. Once the grace period was over, once the grace period was over, 41 people were arrested during a parade and demonstration consisting of 5,000 protesters. Those arrested were jailed for 24 hours, held initially on a misdemeanor charge, but the prosecutors decided the violators had conspired to break the law and thus tried the prisoners under a felony charge of conspiracy. The Wobblies and other soapbox speakers then moved their orientations out of the restricted zone, but the council passed an ordinance which gave the police the ability to arrest anyone that distributed, dis, disrupted <laughs> traffic throughout San Diego. So that sucks, basically. Anyways, so jailing conditions and civil disobedience. Uh, the, incre- the increase in arrests led to rapid filings of the San Diego fillings of the San Diego jails, causing overcrowding and the rapid decline of prison conditions, increasing wobbly anger. I love how they're called the wobblies. wobblies I, I just yeah. like saying that. Wobbly wobbly anger towards law enforcement. The reports about jail conditions were conflicting, but the general trend seemed to show that the wobblies and other pro-free speech detainees were treated badly. The, The jails filled up so quickly that police used their sobering rooms or drunk tanks for housing inmates. These tanks had no beds, and the arrested were forced to sleep on vermin-infested concrete floors. Moreover, police brutality and aggression were rampant, 
while beating and other abuses were relatively common throughout the ordeal. Six, three-year-old, 63-year-old Michael Hoy died on March 28th after oh, the police beat him. That's my birthday. Him. That's terrible. Well, 63-year-old Michael Hoy died on I March know. 28th after police beat him and withheld medical attention. Oh. Maybe we shouldn't have started with my story. <laughs> I'm so sorry, guys. I'm so sorry. Anyways, I'll get to the point in a second here. I only have like three more paragraphs. These uh, events coincided with the plans of the Free Speech League to gut the jails and then demand individual jury trials, which would clog the courts and bring the legal machinery to a standstill. This especially appealed to the IWW so much so that they called for 20,000 wobblies to converge on San Diego in order to bring the system to a halt. Have you guys ever seen the musical Ragtime? I'm pretty yeah. sure this is what the musical Ragtime is about. No, because Ragtime takes place in the East Coast. I know what it is, but I haven't seen it's, it. No, because it's about the, the guy with his car. Scott Chaplin, right? Yeah. No, this is not oh. San Diego. No, 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 no. I know, but it's like in the same time about the free speech movement. Maybe. Right? Maybe it could have been, but it, yeah. No, because no, I'm pretty sure this chick I'm about to talk to, Emma Goldman, is a character in Ragtime. Maybe. Because there was the... Am I thinking um, of Ragtime? I don't know. Anyways, my viewers, let me know. Scott Chaplin is the entertainer. No, I know who that is. Anyway, so, but like Ragtime takes place in like the early 1900s, right? Yeah. Okay, anyways, I digress. Well, it's around the time of Houdini, remember? Because they mentioned him in the musical. Yeah. Um, so anyways, there were 50 members of the local 13 in 1912, but roughly 5,000 Wobblies came to San Diego to participate in the free speech ride. District Attorney Utley tried to offer a compromise to the Wobblies, promising to, promising to free the man originally arrested for the conspiracy if the IWW ceased its public speaking in the restricted zone. Oh, so if you just don't speak in the zone that we're talking about, we'll let you go. That's like the problem though, is there should be no fucking restricted zone. Ah, okay, the compromise, um, the IWW uh, declined the offer on principle even though the attorney E.E. E. Kirk recommended that they accept the compromise. The arrested continued. The IWW protested against the detainment and the prison conditions in the front of the city jail. 5,000 protester, protesters turned out and the police indiscriminately blasted people, including women and children with fire hoses. Increase the increase, the increase in arrest. I'm gonna be so glad when I'm done with this. <laughs> uh, the increase in arrest left police chief Keno Wilson with a dilemma. He wanted to punish the protesters, but simultaneous, 
simultaneously faced overcrowded jails and stockades. After local newspapers began editorializing, God, mm-hmm. what is this word? Editorizing vociferously. Oh, vociferously. Vociferously. Loud since I heard that one. Very loudly. Vociferously. And with passion. <laughs> against the protesters and their tactics, groups of vigilantes began transporting arrested wobblies and free speakers to the county line. So they're basically like, get out of San Diego because you can't free speech. Some guy, as we were driving down, some guy in the front of his fucking multi-million dollar house had a fucking sign that said arrest Fauci. Yeah. Which, shut the fuck up, but also, you can say that. You're fine. You're allowed to say that. You're just pretty much, you're allowed to show everyone that you're a fucking um, idiot. They always <laughs> do. I'm <laughs> You're allowed they to paint the biggest do. sign that you want to saying that you're an idiot. Um, <laughs> you have the right to do that. It is America. America. Um, <laughs> the vigilantes began tr- patrolling trains that were inbound from the north and would grab wobblies and invited speakers before they could get to the city. The vigilantes proceeded to re-educate the speakers on patriotism. As a brutal first account notes, they were drunk and hollering and cursing the rest of the night. In the morning, they took us out four or five at a time and marched us up the track of the to the county line, where we were forced to kiss the flag and then run a gauntlet of 106 men, every one of which was striking at us as hard as they could with their pickaxe handles. Jesus. They broke one man's leg, and everyone was beaten black and blue and bleeding from a dozen wounds. These incidents occurred quite frequently, but were no significant outcry from the middle-class citizens of San Diego. The state of California finally intervened. As Governor Hiram Johnson was flooded with demands for an inquiry into the arrest and vigilantism in San Diego, Governor Johnson sent Colonel Weinstock. Oh, that's you. Sorry. Sorry. No, sorry. Turn off the radio. Okay, Teresa. Yes. I hate the sound of my voice. No, it's not bad. That's going to happen. Sorry. Governor Johnson sent Colonel Weinstock to act Mm -hmm. as an investigative and free free speech restrictions. Sorry, investigative commissioner. Uh, By all accounts, Weinstock was an impartial judge of of the situation, and he concluded that the arrests and free speech restrictions were unlawful, but that the Wobblies were wrong in their pursuance of an activist stance. So, like, to take your free speech is wrong, but it is also wrong for you to pursue free speech, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) Oh, it's wrong of you to be so mad about it. <laughs> we took it away, but we're mad that you're mad. 
Moreover, Weinstock likened the situation to the czarist Russia, ooh, and suggested <laughs> that the attorney general take action, but he did not. Although Weinstock's presence caused a temporary cessation in violence, the situation was once again aroused when Joseph Milokalash, a wobbly, was killed by police in the IAWW headquarters in San Diego on May 7th. The Wobblies reported and employed firearms against the police in an incident which led to the discovery of small arms ca- of small arms cash in the IWW's headquarters. Well, of course they have fucking guns. <laughs> the increased and public hostility towards the IWW and towards Weinstock's report, which had defended the Wobblies constitution constitutional to free speech. So then we get to this lady, Emma Goldman and her husband, Ben Reitman. So Emma Goldman, I want to do a whole fucking <clears throat> podcast on her. She was this badass anarchist lady who basically had this horrible upbringing. And then she would seek out these protests and just kind of go around the world and be like, this is where the trouble is. I'm going to be there. And I'm going to fight. And she was pro so many good things, but also like this badass chick. And she also like would hand out condoms. Like she was like pro birth control and would hand out condoms in the 1900s. I want to do a whole podcast on her because there's so much, so much. So basically Emma Gold men and her husband basically came to San Diego because they were like, this is where the fucking action is. So Emma Goldman was an anarchist, political activist and writer. She played a pivotal role in the development of the anarchist political philosophy, which is basically the start of the idea of anarchy. Uh, If you don't want to know what anarchy is, Look it up. <laughs> the internet is right ahead of you. Fight the and- machine and open a book. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say? Fight the machine and open a book? Yeah. Yes. Um, I don't want to tell you what anarchy is because it's one of those philosophy, philosophies, philosophies that is individual to the person. Um, but fight the man. Wow. Fight the I'm all about it. man. Still- Fight. Working on to do it. His <laughs> name is Patrick. Come Josh and fight was him. like, "This is a fruitless <laughs> effort." I'm like, "No, it's not. No, <laughs> fight not. me? That Absolutely not. No." Um. <laughs> anyways, so she <laughs> was a pivotal role in the anarchist <laughs> political philosophy in North America and Europe in the first half of the 20th century. And Ben Reitman, which was her husband, came to San Diego for Goldman to give her speech, "An Enemy of the People." which was her speech that she did in San Diego on May 15th, 1912. When the two arrived at the train station, the same woman that allegedly needed protection from the soapbox orators yelled, give us that anarchist. We will strip her naked. We will tear her guts out. So basically when they got here into San Diego, they were attacked uh, Mayor of San Diego, James E. Wadman, offered a warning, but no help to the act- two activists. Reitman was abducted 
by vigilantes from his hotel room and tortured. He later recalled, they tore my clothes off, they knocked me down, and when I lay naked on the ground, they kicked and beat me. Sorry, what the fuck? I'm sorry. <laughs> why, why won't that stop? Okay, hold on, sorry. Just turn your volume down. I did though. You're right. It's haunted. <laughs> so sorry. Okay. Uh, so, and Ben Reitman came to San Diego for Goldman to give the speech, an enemy of the people. And on May 15th, 1912, when the two arrived at the train station, the same woman that allegedly needed protection from the soapbox orders yelled, give us the anarchist. We will strip her naked. We will tear her guts out. Tear out her guts. Sorry. Not exactly a quote. Um, the Okay, well, let me say that. Give us an anarchist. We will strip her naked. We will tear out her guts. Uh, Mayor of San Diego, James E. Wadham, offered a warning, but no help to the activist. Reitman was abducted by vigilantes from his hotel room and tortured. He later recalled, they tore my clothes off. They knocked me down. And when I lay naked on the ground, they kicked and beat me until I was almost insensible. With a lighted cigar, they burned the letters IWW on my buttocks. And when they poured a can of tar over my head and in the absence of feathers, rubbed sagebrush on my body. One of them attempted to push a cane into my rectum. Another one twisted my testicles. They forced me to kiss the flag and sing the Star Spangled Banner. Oh, shoot. Which is why we should never sing it ever again last night. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Thank you for not twisting my testicles and showing the cadence. Fuck, though. Oh, my God. That's so. Appreciate it. Just wait till later, honey. Um. When they tired of the fun, they gave me my underwear for fear they would meet any women. They also gave me back my vest in order that I might carry my money, a railroad ticket, and my watch. The rest of my clothes they kept. I was ordered to make a speech, and then they commanded me to run the gauntlet. The vigilantes lined up, and as I ran past them, each one gave me a block or a kick. Then they let me go. Reitman had not been a member of the IWW, although he was a supporter. Emma Goldman then returned to Los Angeles after being misled into thinking that the vigilantes had not harmed Reitman, but simply put him on a train for Los Angeles. Reitman was released a day later and arrived in Los Angeles badly beaten. By the fall of 1912, the soapbox row had been abandoned. The vigilantes ended their terror campaign, for they had brutalized, driven out, or some believe possibly murdered anyone who stood up for the right for free speech in San Diego. This was quite a different result from what the IWW had experienced in other free speech fights around the country. The Wobblies did not return to San Diego. The Wobblies did not return to San Diego until 1914. Wow. And that is what I have to tell you. It is not happy whatsoever. 
I'm so sorry, guys. Okay. Yeah, you and think, the end. I think a story with wobblies would end happy. Yeah, it should. Right? Yeah. Wobblies, yeah. yeah. Um, so, this has been our live stream from the Hotel Del Coronado. I hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, we... So, this has been our live stream from... So, this has been our live stream from the Hotel Del Coronado. So this has been our live stream from the Hotel Del Coronado. Hope you all enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed our episode on San Diego, just south of Hollywood. A little bit haunted, a little bit weird. And uh, please follow us on Instagram at Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast, and also my weird little podcast on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Also follow mm -hmm. our, we are on Twitter, we're Aww. everywhere. So my weird little podcast or Hollywood's Haunted the Podcast. We are one and the same with two different subject matters, but this will go on both. And we love you all. So please follow us and shop at Spooky Bean Shop, buy cute earrings, and also love us. We love you back. Stay spooky. Woo! <laughs>